Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Flint Leverett, a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale and a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation in Washington, D.C. From 1992 to 2003, Mr. Leverett served as Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council, on the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, and as a CIA Senior Analyst. Mr. Leverett's articles and op-eds on Iran, other Middle East issues, and global energy affairs have been published in numerous media outlets. Today we'll talk with Mr. Leverett about American grand strategy in the Middle East and his opinion that we are on the road to failure in this critical region. Welcome, Mr. Leverett. Thanks. Good to be with you. You recently gave a talk at Yale University, and you argued that the U.S.'s grand strategy in the Middle East is at serious risk for strategic failure. Mm -hmm. Just so we're all on the same page, what do you mean by grand strategy? The best one-sentence definition of grand strategy I know comes from a, a smart political scientist at, at MIT, Barry Posen, who describes it as a state's theory of how best to cause security for itself. Now, I think that's a really powerful one-sentence definition, but let me unpack it on a couple of okay. levels. One is the notion of grand strategy is a very comprehensive, all-encompassing uh, sort, of, sort of concept. Um, some of the, I think, some of the most important work that, that Paul Kennedy, the great historian here at Yale, has done has been to, to educate us to think about grand strategy in these comprehensive terms. There is certainly a military component, but it goes well beyond that. Diplomacy is at least as important a part of grand strategy, the ability of a state to, through diplomacy, to reduce the number of its adversaries in mm -hmm. the international arena and to increase the number of states that are willing to work with it, cooperate with it in various ways. That's an important part of grand strategy. Economics, economic power is an important part of grand strategy, not necessarily so much in coercive terms, the ability to coerce others economically, but the ability to attract others through your, your economic prosperity mm -hmm. and uh, uh, quality. So I think that's an important dimension to it, that it's about using all the tools of uh, national power and national policy to promote the interests of a state, not just in wartime, but, but just as importantly, if not more so, in, in peacetime. The other dimension that I think it's important to, to, uh, to unpack is that grand strategy is really about the calculated relationship of means to ends. It's about how you take all these various tools of national power, not just military, but these other tools as well, and how you relate them to promoting and advancing the most important interests that a state has. And that's when I talk about American grand strategy in the Middle East, that's really what I'm trying to get at, is how the United States, not just in any one administration, but across presidential administrations, not just over a four-year term, but over decades, how the United States uh, goes about, has gone about, and will go about uh, trying to promote its most important interests in this very important part of the world. What are the elements of the U.S.'s grand strategy toward the Middle East? 
I would identify three elements that, let me call them traditional elements, mm -hmm. and then I think there's a fourth one that's been um, added on to the agenda uh, okay. more recently. The, the three traditional elements of American grand strategy in the Middle East are, first of all, the provision of uh, energy security mm -hmm. by protecting the physical security of oil flows coming out of the Persian Gulf. This is something on which the, the world economy depends. And by providing this, this kind of energy security, the U.S. presents itself as doing it as a kind of international public good. It is something that all states can benefit from. It gives the United States an important strategic role, not just in the region, but it also bolsters American claims to global leadership and global economic leadership, even at a time when the American economy isn't, isn't going so well, mm -hmm. uh, and when America's international financial position has deteriorated quite a bit over the last decade or so, the United States still plays this very unique role in providing this international public good of energy security. So I think that's one important long-standing element in American sure. grand strategy in the region. A second would be trying to encourage um, negotiated settlements of the various unresolved uh, tracks of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Mm -hmm. American politicians may not like to talk about it in public very much, but I think in, in policy settings in Washington, there is a very widespread recognition that there is at least the potential for conflict between America's interest in providing energy security the way that I've defined it by protecting the flow of, of oil flows out of the mm -hmm. Persian Gulf between that interest and America's commitment to a secure Israel. In theory, at least, the peace process is the way that successive U.S. administrations have tried to, to reconcile the, any potential conflicts between those two interests. So that's a, a second element. A third element is that the United States has tried over several decades to foster a balance of power in the region that is um, favorable to the United States and its regional allies. Mm -hmm. um, we typically like to divide up the region into what we call moderate states okay. that are, we say, are interested in stability. Um, Israel, the Arab states that have made peace with Israel, other moderate Arab states, Saudi Arabia and the mm -hmm. GCC states, for example, um, at least until recently, we would, uh, most American politicians would, I think, have put Turkey in that category. Mm -hmm. We have this moderate camp. On the other side, we have a camp we like to call radicals, um, who are presumably interested only in instability, um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, more often than not Syria, um, various non-state actors like Hamas, Hezbollah, um, at least until 2003, Libya might have fit in that category. And what we've wanted to do over, um, over many years, um, as Henry Kissinger put it so well, we want to basically bolster the position of moderates in the region and marginalize radicals. So those, I think, have been the three kind of long-standing pillars of American grand strategy in the region. Since 9-11, we've added a fourth, I think, mm -hmm. and that is we don't want this region broadly defined um, again to be a platform for launching mass casualty 
terrorist attacks mm -hmm. against the American uh, homeland or, or other important American interests. So I think those are the basic elements mm -hmm. of American grand strategy in the Middle East. And what do you think is going wrong? Well, I think what has gone wrong is the way in which we've, we've tried to pursue these four elements um, of, of our grand strategy in the region. The way in which we've gone about it has grown increasingly dysfunctional mm -hmm. um, over How time. So? I'd identify at, at least a couple of different things. One is, in, our, in terms of our military posture in the region, until relatively recently, we have operated in the region as what you might call an offshore balancer. In other words, from the time that we took on this responsibility of defending the physical flow of oil out of the Persian Gulf, we did not, at least initially, we did not try to do this by putting large numbers of American boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. We built up a very robust naval presence in the Gulf, which we maintain. We arranged all kinds of um, you know, pre-positioning of military equipment, basing arrangements in various places so that in the event of a crisis we could surge conventional ground forces, tactical air forces into the region. But we didn't seek to deploy those kinds of forces there in large numbers on a permanent or ongoing basis. This is the way we fought the first Gulf War after Saddam Hussein ordered his armies to invade Kuwait. Mm -hmm. We surged ground forces, conventional uh, tactical air forces into the region, and with our naval presence there, used that as the basis for expelling Iraqi forces from Kuwait. Mm -hmm. I think one of our biggest mistakes has been we have basically gotten away from offshore balancing as the defining framework for our military posture in the region. We started this right after the first Gulf War when we did not really withdraw um, ground forces and tactical air forces um, from the region following the end of the Iraqi occupation mm -hmm. of Kuwait. Uh, we kept troops on the ground, and i come back to in a minute why I think that was such a disastrous uh, decision. But then we compounded that um, after 9-11 with not just the invasion of Afghanistan, which was actually something for which we had a large amount of regional support, but we then got into a prolonged occupation of Afghanistan, which mm -hmm. is still basically going on. Right. And then we also invaded Iraq and had a prolonged occupation of Iraq. So we were no longer an offshore balancer operating from this kind of over-the-horizon military posture, we became, in the eyes of most people in the region, an on-the-ground occupier. Right. Now, I think this had really, really um, profoundly negative consequences for the United States. First of all, it is directly counterproductive to our counterterrorism goals. I can so. draw you a direct line from the decision to keep forces on the ground, particularly in Saudi Arabia, um, after the first Gulf War to the 9-11 attacks. Um, bin Laden, other senior figures in Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda emerged basically in opposition to and what they would describe as resistance to American occupation of the Muslim Holy Land. 
It is politically convenient and popular in the United States to say that Al-Qaeda Muslim extremists attacked us on 9-11 because they hate our values. We let women drive. We have mm -hmm. religious toleration, all these things. I mean, you can just read their websites, read their statements. They don't really care what we do in our own infidel country. What they care about is what we do in their countries. Right. And what particularly when they perceive us as occupying um, the Arabian Peninsula, the birthplace of Islam, where the two holiest places on the planet for believing Muslims are located, that is something which is going to draw a negative response, and that negative response culminated in the 9-11 attacks. We then compounded that by invading and occupying other Muslim countries, Afghanistan, Iraq. There are now very, very good statistical analyses which show that the level of anti-American terrorism has actually increased dramatically since 9-11, and in particular since the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And this is directly counterproductive to what we say are our counterterrorism goals in the region. I also think in the end, invasion and occupation in the Middle East, it just doesn't work very well. You know, it underscores the limits of American military power, which diminishes our strategic standing in the region. Mm -hmm. And I think it also really, for many regional constituencies, whether we like it or not, it fundamentally calls into question the legitimacy of our purposes in the region. Very few people in the region believe we are actually doing good by prolonged occupation of Afghanistan, by prolonged occupation of Iraq. And we are really undermining the legitimacy of uh, American engagement in the region by by doing that. Finally, we just say, even for countries outside the region like China, it really has called into question whether we really are providing a public good, say in the form of energy security. From a Chinese perspective, the way the United States has acted militarily in the region over the last several years is actually more of a threat to Chinese energy security than it is a help, at least in their, in their perception. Mm -hmm. And I think that, too, creates um, real damage for our international position. The second thing that we've done that I think has really, really hurt us is we basically have tanked on providing any meaningful leadership on Arab-Israeli diplomacy. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of different dimensions um, to this. One, just in terms of how we act as a mediator. Um, we love to say that um, we can't want peace more than the parties. But the fact of the matter is we can, in fact, want peace more than the parties. And the reality is we almost certainly do want peace more than the parties. Um, but we have let ourselves be put in a position where we basically don't want to do anything in the peace process which will make any particular sitting Israeli government uncomfortable. So we have effectively tanked on providing meaningful leadership in that, in that process. Beyond that, we have essentially bought an Israeli argument that Israeli security 
requires something that's tantamount to Israeli military hegemony in the region, that Israel needs to be able to use force first, or at least unilaterally, mm -hmm. anytime, anywhere, for more or less any purpose that it deems desirable. And that has really, I think, undermined American credibility in the region and done real damage to our standing and influence. We are no longer seen as a strategically dominant power in the region that's actually trying to solve problems for people in the region. We are seen as basically a power with hegemonic aspirations, which is creating instability, furthering conflict, and backing Israel in what is widely seen as its hegemonic ambitions in the region. I think that has done um, real damage as well. So how do we get back on the, the road to recovery, so to speak? Um, what do we need to do? Uh, several things. One is I think it's really important that we return to this offshore balancer role with an over-the-horizon military posture. Um, you know, the troops that we have on the ground in Iraq, in Afghanistan, they are not serving a positive long-term strategic purpose for the United States. Um, and we should be moving back as rapidly as possible to this over-the-horizon posture. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Secondly, I would really avoid uh, another, what I would call a war of choice in the Middle East. Um, if we are going to have another war in the Middle East, it will be a war with Iran. It will be a war that the United States initiates, and it will be a war that the United States initiates essentially because the Islamic Republic is enriching uranium. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be a smoking gun where we have intelligence that they're actually trying to fabricate nuclear weapons. The International Atomic Energy Agency is not going to is not going to detect diversion of nuclear materials from um, Iranian nuclear facilities. We're not going to have that kind of causes belly. If we go to war, it's going to be because we reach a point um, in consultation with the Israelis that we don't want the Iranians to go any further in their own uranium enrichment efforts. It will have no international um, legitimation. There will be no Security Council resolution that can be even remotely construed as authorizing it. The sanctions resolutions in place on Iran, um, the Chinese and the Russians have insisted that language be put in there which makes it clear there is no legal basis in these resolutions for the United States to use force. If we do it, we are going to be seen as a kind of rogue superpower, unconstrained by international law, international institutions, and it is going to have an enormously negative uh, impact Aren't on us Aren't we already seen that way, though? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, gonna, it's going to um, take it to a new level, new level. I think. And I think it will also raise further questions for countries like China. Keep in mind, if we fight another war in the Middle East, um, we're going to be fighting this one on borrowed money. And it's going to be money borrowed from China, from other countries that are not going to be um, very thrilled to see a military, another military confrontation in this critical part of the world. Are they really going to be willing you know, to finance something that is um, from their perspective so negative for their own interests. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to end up creating real problems for us 
internationally and the potential for reveal. It's going to be our own kind of Suez moment and illusion in the 1956 Suez crisis where Britain overstepped and basically set itself up for the end of any perception of the United Kingdom as a real major player mm -hmm. in international affairs. I think it would do real profoundly negative damage to America's international position. So avoid that. Um, I'd also say in terms of the balance of power in the region now, it is critical that the United States realign its relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran um, as thoroughly and as comprehensively as we realigned our relations with the People's Republic of China in the early 1970s. At this point in the evolution of the regional balance of power, because of a lot of different factors, including American mistakes, we are in a position where we now cannot achieve any of our own high priority objectives in this part of the world, in Arab-Israeli stuff, in providing energy security in Iraq and Afghanistan. We can't achieve any of our own most important objectives without a better, more productive relationship with Iran. So I think that's critical to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we adopt a genuinely regional strategy on Afghanistan. Um, we are going to have to have all the players in Afghanistan at the table to come up with a legitimate, sustainable power sharing arrangement in that country. And the only way we're going to get there is if we have various key regional players, including Iran, helping us to organize that kind of table. Now that's going to mean a, what I would call a genuinely regional strategy. I think um, we're also related to the idea that we'll go back to offshore balancing. We have to get back to the idea that we really are a strategically dominant power, which is providing real public goods mm -hmm. for people in the region, for people outside of the region. You know, strategic uh, primacy these days is something which is very hard to assert unilaterally. It's something which other players have to legitimate. And I think we need to get back on a track through these various steps, which will help us um, rebuild some measure of legitimacy for a leading American role in this part of the world. In light of these steps or things you just outlined, what do you think the best case scenario is and the worst case scenario is in terms of grand strategy in the Middle East? Um, the best case scenario would be, oh, well, I, if, if, if I think if my recommendations were followed, I think you would see um, the United States regain um, a good deal of its strategic standing and influence in the region. It would be seen once again as a, as a power that was um, pursuing purposes which a lot of regional constituencies would be prepared to see as legitimate. A lot of international constituencies would be prepared to see as legitimate. Um, and we would restore um, a greater measure of uh, influence mm -hmm. in this important part of the region. Um, I think taking a very different approach to the Arab-Israeli uh, uh, arena is also essential to, to that, that we basically need a different kind of peace process than we've got. We have a kind of Cinderella shoe peace process mm -hmm. where if you meet certain criteria that we define, we might let you come to the table, but it means we don't have the right people at the table to reach a deal, and if the people at the table 
could reach any kind of deal, it wouldn't be sustainable, it wouldn't be implementable, it certainly wouldn't be legitimate. So I think that's another part of this re-legitimation mm -hmm. of American um, uh, power and influence in the region. The worst case scenario is we basically stay on the track that we're on. Um, and I think what, when I say we're headed towards strategic failure, it means that we're headed, we are increasingly um, less and less effective at achieving our own goals in this region. Um, the United States is significantly less capable of achieving its stated policy objectives in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf today than it was 10 years ago. You extrapolate that out another five years, another 10 years, um, we may still have this unique capacity to project a lot of military power in the region, but we are going to be seen basically as a failed hegemon, um, a country which cannot achieve its own purposes in the region and cannot marshal other countries um, to work with it, to make the, have these other countries see our objectives as in some way consistent with or supportive of their own objectives. And I think that's going to be, if that ha plays out, that's going to be a very, very damaging blow to America's global position. What do you think the reality of what actually will happen be? Um, I'm sorry to say I'm not particularly optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, as an American, I hope I'm wrong mm -hmm. in saying that, but as an analyst, as a scholar, um, I have to say I'm not very uh, optimistic. A um, lot of reasons for that. Um, the way our own domestic politics is, works is part of it. Um, I think uh, coming out of the Cold War, um, Americans believed that they were on top of the world. They didn't really have to make strategic choices. They didn't really have to make hard or difficult strategic calculations of the sort you have to make mm -hmm. to have a really viable uh, grand strategy. And um, I think that they are in some ways not just politically, we're not just politically constrained, but we're culturally not very inclined to do it and basically out of practice mm -hmm. at, at doing it. Um, whether we can recover, get over those constraints, get beyond those cultural um, predilections and, and, and get back um, into the business of doing real grand strategy in time to avoid strategic failure is um, an open question, but I have to say I'm not, not overly optimistic about it. Well, very good. Thank you so much for being here Thanks with us today me. and sharing some of your work. Thank you. For more information about Mr. Leverett and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you very much.